0: Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Franklin Lewis, a news writer with The Daily Emerald. Welcome to season three of Spotlight on Science. In this series, members of the University of Oregon science community sit down and talk about their research and current events in their field in a language that we can all understand. Today, Professor Radalik joins us from the Earth Sciences Department and the Museum of Natural and Cultural History. We talked about his recent discovery of the first dinosaur fossil found in Oregon, his ongoing research on paleosols and the first life on land, and how the ancient soils he examines inform our understanding of climate change we see today. Let's get to it. Okay, so uh, thank you again for, for being on today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah, and I, you know, first things first. Um, obviously, we want to talk about the dinosaur fossil. That's you know, that's what we're all here for, right? I didn't realize though you're you're kind of famous. You have your own Wikipedia page. First of all, when I went to interview you, um, I was doing some background research. Um, most, of the, most of the people I've talked to don't have their own Wikipedia page. I mean, that's, that's got to be kind of cool, right?
1: It's just what Andy Warhol predicted in <laughs> 15 minutes of fame. In the future, here we are. It's the future. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone has a Wikipedia page. That's true. It's not a great uh, distinction. Yeah, I'm sure it's not. They do have notability criteria, but they're pretty small. And um, a
0: lot of academics are on.
1: Yeah. Um, if you publish stuff um, and you've been at it for a while, pretty likely to get a page,
0: yeah. Um, and you've definitely been publishing stuff for a while, um, but we'll get to your kind of personal career stuff uh, maybe a little bit later. Um, let's start with the first ever dinosaur fossil discovered in Oregon. Am I correct by saying that?
1: Oh, yeah. That was pretty cool. Um, There have been doubts about it being the first because there was a bit of a fluff about a bone that was found at Cape Sebastian some years ago. But we think that's probably a marine turtle. Hmm. And it was never published in a peer-reviewed journal, so it's hard for us to assess it. I've seen it. Yeah. And I I, I think it probably is a a turtle. So we think this is the first real dinosaur. Uh, we found it on a field trip. I take my class in the spring out into central Oregon every year looking for fossil plants and fossil soils, which are my specialties. Right, right. And we like to dally around in other fossil sites where you get marine invertebrates, fossils, ammonites, and things like that. And um, this just was sitting out. It was quite a discovery. It was great.
0: Well, it's a it's a toe bone, correct? It's yeah. It's
1: all it is. It's a which tiny is, little toe bone. It's yeah. about two inches long and about an inch thick. Um that's a big toe bone when you think about it. Yeah. Um we can compare the bone with other dinosaur feet and other dinosaur skeletons we have. And it's about the same size as a very famous dinosaur mummy of a duckbill called Brachylophosaurus canadensis and it has a nickname of Leonardo. Huh. Which I just happened to see in the Children's Museum of Indianapolis last week when I went to a meeting. There. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and that's about five meters long and about 800 kilograms in
0: weight, uh, live weight, uh, yeah. uh, we can calculate. So it was
1: a pretty big animal, pretty substantial animal.
0: Yeah, and I mean, what's always fascinating for me is that you can take that toe bone. Um, I mean, it is a large toe bone, but you can extrapolate so much from that one bone. Um, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that, but I mean, there's obviously some science and some, maybe some math and some kind of mapping that goes into that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes. I I had expert helpers, um, Jessica Theodore, um... Edward Davis, Samantha Hopkins, they were all co-authors. And then a grad student helped me too with imaging. That's Paul Barrett uh, at the University of Oregon here. But um, most of it actually came from my summer of the dinosaur foot fetish when I drove my (laughs) Prius all the way to the North Slope and back. Um, that drive is absolutely fantastic for dinosaur museums. Huh. So there's one in Fairbanks. There's one in Wembley, Alberta. There's huh. the famous one in Drumheller, Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta. And then I ended up at the Museum of the Rockies in Bozeman, Montana. Wow. And uh, the best place to study dinosaur feet is where they're all – Mounted and displayed for the public, so I, I have uh, hundreds of pictures of dinosaur feet that I took <laughs> in all of these exhibits to try and. And when I eventually got to the Museum of the Rockies, I I knew what bone it was I was dealing with, and I they they got them out for me, and I could really compare them closely, and that was yeah. that was really key for me. But my co-authors already had a bit of an idea what it was, and and I didn't really overturn their ideas. Yeah. I just tried to
0: you just yeah, trying to make sure you want to I just to check wanted to make through. sure yeah. exactly.
1: I mainly wanted, uh, wanted to know what it was not. Yeah, because uh, we we thought it was sort of. On what the-
0: were some of the initial thoughts you had? I mean, you. you I'm sure, like you ended up being a. Um well, nithopod uh, yeah. I oh, think nithopod. it's a an an an
1: nithopod and, and, and we were actually hoping it was a duckbill or a hadrosaur That would have been great, you know, because we're the Oregon ducks But sadly <laughs> that, would been, that
0: would have been convenient this
1: is, this is about 5 million years before the real duckbills um, evolved okay. uh, And we're not quite sure what exactly it was All we yeah. can say
0: is that it's a nithopod based on the toe bone And get an idea of the size And the uh, kind of the group of ornithopods, like those are, it's a pretty broad group, right? There's a it's lot, a come in a lot group. of different forms. Yes, that's so. right.
1: One of the famous ones yeah. um, in the group is Iguanodon, uh, which is a spike-thumb dinosaur. Mm. Um, the um, tenodosaurus is another quite famous one that's found in the eastern, western United States in different places. Um, Eolambia, it's between uh, Eolambia, which is a, a proto-duckbill and Tenontosaurus in its age and in its morphology, too. It's a pretty good intermediary.
0: And these were like plant-eating dinosaurs, correct? They Um, were indeed.
1: And um, all of the ornithopods of that sort. And we have plants in the fossil deposits. So in our paleobotany trip, we hope to pick up some plants as well. Yeah. It turns out the plants paint a picture that's pretty interesting. Um, We get um, coast redwood, sequoia like plants uh, in with the marine fossils interesting, and the dinosaur. We get ferns yeah. and we get horsetails. Um, the whole situation of the plants and the conglomerates and the shales out mm. there, it looks like in the Cretaceous 100 million years ago, it would have been just like the coast of Northern California. Interesting. Around um, um, Humboldt County, yeah. uh, Arcata. Yeah. Uh, with redwoods on it was a clift coast that's why we get so much conglomerate near the coast and then it went
0: rapidly off into a shaley continental shelf Hmm. and so i guess talk a little bit about the um, the, like, the actual fossil discovery because a lot of these i think people have in their mind that you're going out there and you're looking for fossils and you're trying to un, you know turn over every rock and find these things i think i'm sure you can talk to this most fossil discoveries are kind of accidental like you're just looking for something else and you happen to stumble across something um, which I think was the case here
1: yes absolutely it was a complete serendipity I was yeah. looking for ammonites yeah um, and uh, that's actually pretty significant because when you look for ammonites, you have an eye, you have a coil in your mind. You're looking for that lovely coiled shell. Yeah. So to find a bone, I I, I, I was actually quite lucky I, I noticed it even because uh, you usually find what you're looking for. There was no excavation necessary. It was just sitting out with the others. It was, it was um, just,
0: it was completely on its own. It, it wasn't even in rock or anything. Uh, not
1: on its own. It was found with a whole bunch of ammonites and yeah. snails and clams. Uh, typical marine fauna that yeah. was found there. Um, a complete accident. Uh, that was several years ago. Uh, the st- right, it was
0: in 2015, right? Uh, I think that's right. Yeah, first the, the, students were, yeah.
1: the students were not impressed. It was pretty <laughs> awful looking. It didn't look like it was had much promise, and there was no huh. serious excavation or anything like that about it. But it's taken this long to get it in a peer-reviewed journal. and We don't make press releases from the museum until we have it actually nailed down academically
0: because, you know, fake news, uh, we
1: have to avoid that.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah, let's not go down that road, right? Right. Um, And I guess the other thing I wanted to touch on, too, is that um, the reason it's, you know, the first ever Oregon dinosaur fossil is because Oregon was primarily underwater for the time that dinosaurs were alive. So maybe explain a little bit how the fossil even ended up here. That yeah, might help a, some people. Yeah,
1: there's, a, there's several aspects of that. And I, I'm very interested in what it takes to preserve a, a dinosaur or any yeah. other bone uh, for that matter. And, and what it takes is a fairly calcareous soil, which is full of lime. Um, and these are just the soils sort of normally formed in desert areas, dry areas. And there's a lot of places like that with dinosaur bone throughout um, the western United States and elsewhere around the world. But in Oregon, sadly, the rocks of the age that would have dinosaurs are either marine and the Mm. dinosaurs didn't live there, or there's swamps. In swampy environments, the acid in the soil etches away the bone and it's not uh, preserved at all well. But once in a while, um, we find dinosaurs actually in marine rocks. They evidently died somewhere near the shore. Um, uh, the carcass bloated or was carried by the tide and it rotted. And then they distributed the bones, uh, over an area of the continental shelf, probably at quite considerable depth. Yeah. These things are super rare. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a, dino- there's a, a deposit in Germany that's famous for its fossils. It's a marine deposit of Jurassic age that has ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs and all sorts of things. And they yeah. found one dinosaur and they've been quarrying this Locality since medieval times for roofing shale. So um, you can imagine it's kind of a rare event. Yeah. And so we don't expect to find one soon, another yeah. one soon.
0: <clears throat> yeah. And I mean, but you're now kind of on guard, I guess, for them in a way. Like you're, We are. Yeah. We
1: are. And there's more bone out there. And um, as it turns out, we got notified that there, there's, there's another little concentration of bone. Uh, a lot of the local rock hounds are geared up and yes, yeah. got their eyes peeled. Um, Edward Davis,
0: my colleague at the museum, I believe, yeah. is going to go check that one out. Soon. Yeah, that's exciting. I mean, and I'm sure this discovery will kind of inform some future research that you're doing. Um, I don't know what your next projects are, but uh, I'm sure this, this might help kind of guide some kind of well, research. We have, or maybe it's a graduate student who takes us on or something.
1: We have we have some, um, some more prospective dinosaurs from Oregon. Um, we're not ready to reveal anything about them yet. But it's starting to paint a picture of what the dinosaur fauna of the West Coast was like. The whole West Coast is actually pretty miserable for dinosaurs. California's not bad, but bits and pieces are turning up. You really don't
0: hear much about dinosaur fossils. No, you don't. No, Washington Washington found one
1: um, on Susie Island a couple of years ago, and they published that in Plus One, I think it was. Mm. And um, that was a big theropod. So they're coming in in dribs and drabs. People are really into fossil hunting and with a lot more people looking. I I think the, the picture will come together even though these things are vanishingly rare. Uh, I think there's this, some of the, a lot of these discoveries, uh, the Washington one, for example, that was by amateurs. Yeah. Uh, so amateurs are playing a, a more important role in paleontology than ever. Definitely. They're more numerous. They have more time. Yeah. They're not constrained by people. You just have to vet it. Yeah. yeah exactly. Right. Yeah. They're not, they're not teaching. Yeah. They're not, they're, they're, a lot of them are retired people yeah. and, and they have a lot of time to devote to it. Exactly. Uh, I think this is great. Yeah, uh, we we have
0: it inspires um, people too. It, I mean, it yeah. does it draws have,
1: people to the field. We have a local group, Nug, which um, meets in the Rice Museum in Hillsboro in Oregon, and they've been fantastic. Um, I'm the director of the Conan Collection here, the bone is, uh, you know, a type collection yeah. in 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 the museum, but they've been finding a lot of stuff and donating us. To us. We, we're now the official cool. collection for the state of Oregon that passed the state legislature really? just earlier this year. Well,
0: congratulations on that.
1: We were pretty proud of that. Um, and what it means is we have this really irreplaceable legacy that is growing because of our outreach yeah. to the public.
0: And, I mean, this is outreach to the public is what you're kind of doing right now, exactly. Exactly, exactly.
1: Um, we have a really great museum um, here at the University of Oregon, an underappreciated one. We just were accepted into the American Alliance of Museums. Yeah. Uh, and we try to run uh, programs that are reaching people. We have education programs that have visited, I think, all but four counties in really? the state of wow, Oregon. Really? that's impressive. High yeah. schools, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, the whole um, Museum of Natural and Cultural History, it's, it is kind of underrated, I think. It's like kind of over by you know global scholars hall it's kind of not almost like shrouded in the trees over there but sometimes it gets lost in the the hustle and bustle and it's a, it's a really cool place if you ever kind of stop through and it is and um have we, yeah, we rotating we have, we have mammoth yeah. sculptures too now yes Did i heard notice, yeah that was a that huge was really deal yeah quite, quite <laughs> that's wonderful. quite the spectacle when those went in
1: but the the way we see it natural history and particularly fossils um are a gateway to stem right. a gateway to um science and math education for young people especially and so this uh dinosaur fossil i think is really a gift to oregon's children more than anyone else it's something they can think about and something that they can try to find themselves
0: exactly um let's shift a little bit to your personal career because i was kind of interested when i was researching um you're originally from australia is that correct that's right yeah. and how did i mean it's Australia's. uh it's got its own you know geologic significance and um, various things that are, that are going on over there that are maybe a lot different from Oregon or maybe similar to Oregon. Um, I was just curious how you ended up in Oregon because that seems like a large jump to make.
1: Oh, uh, I came for looking for a postdoc and I got a job. I got a teaching job, which I didn't like. <laughs> but then I did get a postdoc, yeah. which was fantastic. Uh, and then um, no jobs came up in Australia. Um, I am married a musician from Indiana, Diane Ritalik who's famous in town for the Eugene Concert Club. Oh, yeah. And uh, we've been here since 1981, and it's been fantastic, a fantastic career. I still go back to Australia. My, a lot of my research projects are in Australia, huh. in um, Central Australia now, but uh, South Australia for many years looking at these weird things called ediacaran fossils. My own research is in fossils and in fossil soils. Yeah. that uh paleosols, right? Way yeah. ancient. So yeah. just last week we had another press release on a 3.7 billion year old paleosol from Greenland. Wow. I I'm, I'm interested in what the earliest earth was like. Yeah. And the soils can tell us a lot about
0: that. Yeah. And because you know there's stuff living in the soil, that plants have to put, you know, they have to establish themselves in the soil. Um, uh, you know, a lot of your stuff is looking at fossilized plants too. Is that correct? And that's right. Um, and maybe using those fossils to kind of date, um, you know, that's what's big now is using the fossils to kind of date the rock that's around them. Um, do you, do, do you? I mean, you've, you've, your stuff has been a lot of it has been about dating. Um,
1: not really so much dating. Okay. I'm, I'm more interested in the environment. And okay, I, I actually did start out as a paleontologist. Botanist, pe- a person who studies fossil plants. And yeah. Instead of just individual plants, I was interested in what the whole community was like. And then as right. a teenager, when the surf was down around the coastal beaches of Sydney, I would go around and I discovered these wonderful things called fossil soils. And the whole soil tells you more about the community level structure of yeah. the plants than the individual uh, plants themselves. And so I started out in triassic age rocks, about 250 million years old, and I've been able to work all up and down the column, which has been just great. Yeah. But now I'm most interested in, even before plants, way before plants, when there was just microscopic life on there, yeah. what was it like, and uh, what kind of a planet was it making?
0: Yeah, and you've got, I mean, you've had a fossil dated as far back as like 2.2 billion years old, and... You, or, um, oh, that was a wonderful one. Yes, yeah. A little,
1: little discagmo It's a little. it's, yeah. a, it's the first fungus. Uh, it's the first eukaryote, of the first cell that was nucleated that we have in the fossil record. And it was living on land 2.2 billion years ago. That's incredible. I mean, is think it? about uh, like uh, yeah. you know
0: that comes off. You can just throw that number out there, but if you really think about that, that's
1: a long time. That's incredible. Yeah, it is. I discovered it in 1984, and I I had a pretty good idea of what it was even then. But proving it was hard. Yeah. Very hard. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I mean, how yeah, do you we get to, there? Like, so it 2 was, was 2 it was, it was though. tiny. It's only about two millimeters long and it's hollow and it's in a very opaque matrix of a schistose rock. So it's been metamorphosed and recrystallized to yeah. some extent. We took it down to the accelerator in Lawrence Berkeley lab in Berkeley. And they have these wonderful machines that can make three dimensional tomographic images, even of tiny things like that. Mm. And that was really the kicker. We, we had all sorts of other chemical analyses as well. But uh, sometimes these things take a long time. It was so discovered in 1984, published in 2013.
0: Well, <laughs> <laughs> so it takes, it's not unlike uh, geologic time, it takes a while sometimes oh, to yeah. get these no, things published. I, I,
1: I had a long list of yeah. authors on that project because I kept putting students on it and they, 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 they did pretty well, but they 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 knew it, it wasn't quite ready for prime time.
0: <laughs> uh, and eventually we got it done. I mean, they you're saying the fossil is two millimeters long. I mean that's still just to me, like, how do you even know that's a fossil when you're looking at it?
1: Oh, we had thin sections of the rock. So a yeah. lot of a lot one of the one of the approaches that we use very regularly is we cut this thirty micron thin slice of the rock so we can look at microscopically. Makes sense. Yeah. And and they were pretty obvious there. But it's one thing to see a slice through something. And another to see the whole thing reconstructed. right? And um, referees are very skeptical if you just have slices through things. They want to see the whole thing in three dimensions now. Yeah. And so that's what it eventually took.
0: I mean, I think, you know, as we've been talking about this, sometimes uh, geology can be – there's so many different subfields of geology. Um, And I feel like sometimes when you say you're a geologist, it can get misinterpreted because people have – in their mind, they can think that that's one thing and really you're in a different subfield. Um, do you kind of agree that it's one of the more misinterpreted sciences?
1: Oh, I don't know. I think all science is pretty misinterpreted these days. So <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're not good at publicizing our yeah. science, I think, is the main reason. Uh, but that's changing. That's changing a lot. When I was – a young scientist back in the 80s and 70s, there was very little science journalism to speak of. There was a little bit of information in things like Scientific American and journals like that, but now you find articles on science coming in the paper every second week.
0: I mean, that's interesting. I mean, the um, I mean, I'm one of my big things is that you know science isn't communicated in the right way, um, and part of that is that the, the kind of sh- the way that The media uh, tries to cover science is kind of inherently flawed, Um, but I mean geology is just—it's got so complex because it's all these different. um, I mean, there's you're studying paleosols. You got some people who are studying fossils within the soil. Some people are just studying the rocks themselves. Um, It and there's and there's always like you know collaboration with all those people too, um, which I guess is similar to other fields as well. Um, That's right. Uh,
1: What we have a great advantage in in paleontology, we have beautiful, illustrative material. We have visual imagery that is quite wonderful. Um, It's very hard to visualize genetic information, for example, or um, chemical information. But when you're dealing with rocks, fossils, landscapes, or even the cosmos, um, the illustrated material is quite wonderful. And Mm -hmm. I think people react very well to poetic and artistic visions of science. And we need to have more of that out before the public so they see what we're actually dealing with and how we're interpreting it.
0: Yeah, and I think you know fossils are kind of what people are drawn to inherently because they're so – as you say, they're so visual and they can kind of tangibly say, oh, this exact organism lived at this time. Sometimes when you're kind of dating rock or you're trying to say the significance of a paleosol, it's a, it's not as flashy. You know what I mean?
1: Well, yes, the paleosols aren't that impressive but, looking. But the thing is, Some my, are, though, because my point is,
0: like, they are actually a huge deal. They are. They just they aren't are. made as yeah. much of a deal, maybe.
1: Yeah, these, uh, it takes time for these things to percolate down into people's consciousness. Paleosols are intrinsically quite beautiful. Uh, the big badlands of South Dakota, for example, that's just a pile of paleosols. Mm. If you ever wondered why that is so beautifully coloured and so subtly banded, it's yeah. really quite uh, incredible. The Petrified Forest National Monument, which I was just at a couple of weeks ago, is also a whole pile of paleosols. The Grand Canyon, a lot of those red layers in the Grand Canyon, those are paleosols. There's some marine beds in there as well, but the really pretty stuff—the red, green, mottled massive, subtle material. These yeah. are usually paleosols. Uh, it's taken a long time. When I was starting out, nobody was hiring a paleopedologist or a right. fossil soil right. person. and It sounds vaguely obscene. So I started out as a paleobotanist and got hired on that basis. Uh, but it's changing. Um, these fields evolve, attract more people, and start to make more impact.
0: Now, one of the questions I always like to ask um, various scientists who I have on this program is um, talking a little bit about their luckiest break um, at, in their career. Because I feel like everyone has one. Oh, um, yeah. Can you think of kind of the, the luckiest uh, discovery you've had? or the? There,
1: there, uh, there, there are two that come to mind. Um, perhaps the luckiest one was uh, I wrote a paper about a Martian paleosol, which was really quite wonderful, yeah. from the Curiosity mission. And what happened was that uh the curiosity people would come to meetings where I was uh, attending and give a talk about what they're finding and they showed this wonderful picture of a place called Yellowknife Bay, and I would go up to them afterwards and say, "You know that's a paleosol and and they would say to me, "You know some people in our team think that but management does not so <laughs> so they published this paper two point five billion dollar mission." They published several papers in science without even mentioning the paleosol. Oh, jeez! And so I was able to take all their data and their illustrations. It's all public domain. Yeah. And write a wonderful paper on a Martian paleosol um, in a high-profile journal.
0: They because they didn't of, bother to keep it on, yeah. They, uh, they didn't well, bother to include the info. If, yeah. if,
1: if if they'd said, oh, some people think this might be a paleosol, but we don't think so for this, this, and this reason, then I would have been dead in the water. But luckily they didn't do that, so it left it open. The other one was um in South Australia many many years ago when I was visiting a place for some very famous fossils that are called um, Ediacaran because they were found in the Ediacra Hills and that's now a period about 500 uh, million years ago and I found that a lot of the fossils were actually in paleosols which was pretty surprising mm-hmm. because at that time uh, they were thought to be uh, marine uh, that was a really lucky break because um, nobody was thinking about that, and I had the whole idea to myself and and published it in a very prominent journal and it's it 's done very well
0: um, why should uh, Why should people care about paleosols i mean we 've touched on this the entire podcast so far, but um what 's kind of the key reason that um people should be caring about these? Because we live and die by the
1: soil, and because we need the soil, we need to recruit the soil to help us with our global environmental problem. The soil is the main consumer of carbon dioxide uh, in the form of organic matter in the soil, and also in the form of the carbonic acid solutions that weather the soil. Weathering is the thing that keeps the greenhouse from going out of control. It has in the past, and we can use it again. Uh, particularly grassland soils that are managed with grazers in such a fashion that they build organic carbon. This is a very easy way out of our current crisis. About 25% of the world's land area is currently under managed grassland. These Hmm. are the most fertile soils on the planet. These are the soils that created the ice age that we just got out of in the first place. Yeah. Um, and I've figured all that out just by studying fossil soils. And now more and more farmers are coming around to the idea that building carbon should be subsidized by hmm. the government. Building carbon in soils should be subsidized by the government. And this is a very potent weapon against uh, global warming. So PalliSols tell us about the environment. They tell us about environments of the past, and they tell us about how the global thermostat works so we can prepare for the future.
0: Um, that's, a, that's a great way, I of think, of, of really tying that back to climate change. It all comes back to climate change at some it point. Does. So.
1: It does, it does. So, you know, people say, oh, you know, we've never seen a CO2 spike like the one we're in currently because of the burning of fossil fuels. Yeah. That's actually not true. There are dozens of them all the way mm. back in history, uh, prehistory. Um, some of them much much worse, and they came, they went up just as fast. You can actually see the rise of c o two looking at isotopic composition through varved shales. A varved shale has one layer for every year. So we have an annual record mm. back 250 million years ago at the Permian Triassic Life Crisis, which was a really big CO2 spike. Yeah. We can study these spikes. We can study them with the soil. We can study them with fossil plants. We can study them with sedimentary records uh, in the ocean. We have these different attacks on understanding how you get into one of these things and how you get out. In the past, we got into them because of intrusions, massive intrusions that liberated a lot of organic carbon that was in coal seams huh. or other sediments into the atmosphere. Yeah. And in, in the past, we got out of them pretty much by plants migrating and making deeper weathered soils and more organic rich soils migrating to higher latitudes in the warmer climate and that's how we're going to get out of this current one
0: well uh professor radelick thank you so much for being on today um we're going to wrap it up there i really appreciate you being on and talking about all these different things um related to fossils and paleocells and there's there's really we could go on for hours with this stuff but um it's all connected and um, i think you did a great job of of kind of summarizing that in a way that people can can grasp so thank you very good thank you thank you this was our fourth episode of season three of spotlight on science thanks again to professor ratalik for being our guest today i'm franklin lewis please reach out if you'd like to recommend a member of the uo science community for us to interview leave us a comment on soundcloud or at the dailyemerald.com the music in this episode is zombie disco by six umbrellas which we found on freemusicarchive.org to hear more from the emerald podcast network you can subscribe on itunes and soundcloud and listen to these episodes right on the emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com thanks for listening